Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from here in the historic Habern Building at 106.5 FM, and we live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. We want you to go there to become a part of our community radio station. We built it for you. It's radio for the people, by the people, and that means people like you need to help us out, whether it's as a volunteer behind the microphones or behind the scenes or as a donor to the station. And it only takes $20 a day to keep this great community resource broadcasting. So, hey, why not go to affordradio.org today and become a part of it, become a member of the station. Well, what we do each week here on Sustainability Now is we bring in folks from around the community who uh, are doing the work of challenging the narrative of <laughs> that we can only uh, fix things by solving one thing at a time. But the reality is we need to figure out solutions that make sense not only for the environment, but for society and for an economy that functions well so that we can all have a better life tomorrow. And I believe we can have it today. And it's about claiming it. It's about claiming that political power, about finding solutions that work. And so I'm excited to get in the studio, someone who's been on my list for a long time. I wanted to talk to Jason Abbott for quite a while. So welcome to the studio, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's, it's nice to be here. It's great to have you. Jason is a professor of political science and director of UofL's Center for Asian Democracy. I don't know if our conversation is going to talk too much about Asian democracy today, but maybe it'll blur over there. We really want to talk about this whole concept of extinction rebellion and citizens seizing the moment to demand radical change to save our species. And if folks aren't familiar with the work of extinction rebellion, a good place to start is with our, our local statewide chapter, xrebelky.org. But we'll talk about what sorts of things under this umbrella of extinction rebellion today. So tell us your story, Jason, about how you got interested in environmental issues in the first place. One of the first memories I have of, of being engaged and being interested in the environment was around 1992 when yep. Uh, yep. Al Gore famously uh -huh. published his book. And um, Earth in the Balance. I, 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 Earth in the Balance. I and I, I remember buying it, reading it, and being both utterly horrified <laughs> at the, what he spelled out in there, much of which has already you know, come to, we, we've come to seen, pass. we've yeah. seen happen yeah. in our lifetimes. And at that time, it was more of a call to action. This is what could happen. And now we are living with the consequences that he played out. But those consequences terrified me and <laughs> at the same time motivated me. So, well, you know, this is something that should be on my radar. This is something I should be interested in, engaged in. And at the time, I was just transitioning from undergraduate to postgraduate study. And I did for a short period of time when I was at the University of Newcastle, I did toy with the idea of doing my graduate studies on the environment and do my graduate studies on particularly the protection of the Antarctic and the Arctic. But unfortunately, there wasn't anyone at that university at the time who had those expertise that could supervise me. And I was self-funding and uh -huh. other opportunities came my way. Uh -huh. And so my trajectory went very much in the direction that led me to be the director of the Center for Asian Democracy. <laughs> but I never stopped thinking about, caring about or being involved. But I wasn't deeply involved for many, many years. I was kind of like an armchair environmentalist. I would send my checks off to Greenpeace right. and I would write the letters that were asked of me. But 
it didn't really go beyond that until until Greta Thunberg began her school strike, really. Yeah, that's more recent. I want sure, to slow you sure. down, though. If I Definitely. could just investigate a little bit more. I went to college in the mid-90s, too. So I don't really feel like I ever had this one moment where I had an environmental awakening. But I went into college knowing I wanted to do environmental studies. Mm-hmm. And my real moment of awakening wasn't until my senior year of college. So this would have been 1995, where this concept of sustainable development mm-hmm. really brought it all together for me because I, I was realizing that you know the more I studied about environmental issues the more I realized these are really social cultural political economic issues yep. <laughs> and it's not yep. that we need to like spend more time studying the ecosystem <laughs> I mean yes we do in a way but the real problem is people and how they think how they prioritize mm-hmm. where they invest the decisions that people are making is what's screwing us up right yep. and so then I realized oh we got to think bigger than just how do we fix the environment like that mm-hmm. is never going to fix the environment it's really about how we fix society and the economy that's driving all of these problems so i was in it in a u.s context but i'm really curious to mind the the sort of the british context sure. and and newcastle in the 90s was anybody thinking about these environmental issues well the country was yeah i don't recall any narrower sort of specific to newcastle actions there was a brief period where there was a a new road that was being developed oh yeah um through a part of the city not far from the university where there was a a wooded glen a wooded dell and uh, there was an existing road that went through it and it was a beautiful park a bit like cherokee park but smaller and uh you know the the town planners in their ultimate wisdom decided (laughs) that this should be widened into a four-lane road and that meant that there was obviously naturally a great deal of ecological damage and disturbance that that came with that and I can remember there was some tentative anti-row protests and I remember one night I have to admit that my first bit ever of direct action (laughs) I was walking home a little bit worse for the wear after some alcohol and um I, I walked down the road that was going to be turned into this four-lane highway, and there was already some roadworks there and some traffic cones. Yeah. And I decided to block the road with traffic cones yeah. in the middle of the night as my act of rebellion. And I'm sure all it did was <laughs> a few drivers off. Someone would have had to have gotten out their car and moved them. But what was that indicative of? And the reason why I said in the country as a whole was in 92, 93, There was a large number of big road projects that were going on in the UK. And really the environmental movement had a sudden kind of direct action outburst, not dissimilar to what we would later see with Extinction Rebellion, but focused mainly on stopping roads. There was an an organization that sprung up called Reclaim the Streets. Uh And there were a number of very prominent eco campaigners who would chain themselves to trees to disrupt the logging process that was necessary. And in one famous case, there was a new, we called them at the time, the press called them New Age. They were kind of New Age hippies, crusties. Yeah. And there was a, a prominent uh, young man whose nickname was Swampy. And what he did was he actually dug a cave under a development of a, a major bypass, not far from Stonehenge. And, oh, really? uh, and, and he lived in that for, I, I can't remember how long now, but several weeks, maybe a couple of months, and shot to notoriety in the media because of his his campaign. And of course, the bypass ended up being built. 
but it, it was at the same time as I would read Earth in the Balance, and it all kind of yeah. began to crystallize at the, the frustration at the system, that the system was wrong, the system needed to be changed, and that wasn't happening. Yeah. And that was my first kind of similar awareness to you, and at the same time as I was trying to make that initial decision, which way to go with my, with, with my postgraduate studies, I took a course in environmental philosophy. It was an adult education course. And I remember that the professor that taught that course was introduced the various different kind of ideas of sustainable development and the different importance of writers like Rachel Carson and, and, and others. And he didn't really hide his dismissal of the sustainability argument. And he was much more moved and influenced by the work of Arne Nace and the concept of deep ecology and that sustainability was really just kind of like greenwashing and tinkering and that the sort of insight in the deep ecology movement about nature having an intrinsic value of its own that, that mm. cannot and should not be monetized in mm. order for it to be important. I remember that having a, a legacy and an impact on me that was always kind of there, nagging on my shoulder, but yeah, life got in the way and my career got in the way and, and yeah. uh, I drifted to that armchair environmentalist for a very <laughs> long time. Now, there's, there's some sort of parallels here. I'm sure listeners are familiar with this phrase. That's like bringing coal to Newcastle. So here you are in Newcastle, England, which is like the coal mining region yeah. of England. And now you're here in the coal mining region of America. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, do you see parallels there or am I making that up? <laughs> um, I do. I think the main difference is the way that political authority is devolved to states in the U.S. Yeah, yeah has meant that the coal industry has had an oversized influence in Kentucky. And so senators for the state and pretty much all the major politicians for the state have sought to defend the industry. Mm -hmm. Now, in the context of the United Kingdom, until Scottish devolution occurred, there was very little, if any, real powers that parts of the country held other than local councils and the yeah. usual role that they play in city management. And so political decisions were taken by London, particularly under the Thatcher administration, to destroy the coal industry. Oh, wow. Um, and that was because in Britain, the defenders of the coal industry were the trade union movement. The trade unions were very powerful, especially the National Union of Mine Workers. Huh. And deep coal is not the most cost efficient. Right? It's probably why they blow the mountain tops yeah, off instead exactly. in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, deep coal mining became more and more fuel inefficient. And the Conservative government wanted to support the, the then nascent North Sea oil industry that found all this oil offshore, oh, right, off yeah. the coast of the north, uh, east of Scotland, towards Norway. It was much cheaper to get that out the ground than it was to, to do the coal mines. Uh, new industries, so the unions hadn't had an opportunity to get their political influence in that new industry. And then later on, natural gas would come on stream. And so a decision was taken, we don't need coal. Coal doesn't have to be a major source of our energy mix. We can get it elsewhere. And so we can destroy the mining industry, and that will destroy the political power of the trade unions and the oh, National Union of Mine Workers. Right. And so the difference is, you go to Newcastle now, the coal industry is no longer there. Huh. It's a tourist industry. You can go and see what the miners <laughs> used to live like. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's true for the whole of Britain. In fact, I don't think there is a single working deep mine in Britain is anymore. Is that right? 
I think they're all gone. Maybe there's an open top somewhere, but pretty much coal has been eradicated as a source of energy, but not for any environmental purpose, <laughs> but simply for uh, economics. Just because Thatcher wanted to break the unions. And she wanted cheaper energy. <laughs> cheaper energy. Okay. That's a good story most Americans don't know. That's really cool. Well, okay. So you get you get charged up at this point in your life. But like you've said several times now, life intervened, career intervened. You became more of an armchair environmentalist. This is not a unique situation, right? Like so many people are in this condition. And it makes me think that we can't expect everybody to be an activist all the time, right? We have to figure out how to make the right choice, the ethical choice, the right choice from a deep ecology perspective, the natural choice for people, the convenient choice, the easy choice, right? And so what are some of the things that have been barriers as you've been sort of this armchair environmentalist? What, What do you see as like, what makes it difficult for people to do the right thing? Well, we live in a culture where the predominant expectation for our children and you know that was me back when I was 18 at college 18 yep. 22 at college yep. the predominant expectation is that each generation has some kind of right to a higher standard of living than the generation that preceded them and that our parents were wealthier than our grandparents and grandparents were wealthier than their, their parents and with that comes security and therefore everybody is geared towards measuring success mm-hmm. materially mm-hmm. and you get caught into that so it's all then about you know and and every aspect of life is dominated by that so it's like you need to have a security in the future so you need to buy a house yep. you need to have a good pension yep. in the US you need good health care And so all of those choices start to steer you to make, you know, from every little subtle decision to the big life decisions are affected by a material determination. And so now I think we've got to a perverse stage of it where even people that haven't thought about the environment before are starting to question the the ethics. You know, I have friends my age who have bought houses in the big ex-Burbian yeah, developments, yeah. right? And they kind of brag, oh, I got 6,000 square feet and three <laughs> and three car garage. And oh I'm like, my gosh. Well, what do you do with 6,000 square feet? <laughs> why do you need Why that? do you need a 16-foot great room? You know, why do you need that 16-foot ceiling? You know yeah. all the hot air is going to go up in there. It's going to cost you a fortune to heat. And you just got to keep buying stuff to, to fill it. And a number of people I know are starting to look around and think, you know, why do I want that? Do I want that? Do I really yeah, want yeah. more for the sake of more? Now, I don't think that it's, we're at some sort of major societal tipping point yet by any means. But I've started to notice more and more people starting to, to sort of ask, does this bring me any real value to my life? Is yeah. it making me happier? Yeah. Chasing stuff all the time, wanting more, wanting newer, wanting better. Is it really making me happy? Right. And I think those are the areas where I think we need to make, we, we can challenge ordinary people to just question their everyday decisions and ask that question. Does this really bring me joy? Do I need it? Or am I just chasing it because I'm keeping up with the Joneses? Yeah. Or because I'm bombarded with commercials telling me that I oh, want it. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My guest today here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, is Jason Abbott. He's a U of L professor of political science and director of the Center for Asian Democracy. But we're talking today about his passion for the environment and for sustainability. And he hails from the birthplace of the Extinction Rebellion movement. And so we're, we're kind of talking about this in the context of Extinction Rebellion and the work for citizens rising up in defense of 
the, the very basic things that sustain us, a, a functioning and healthy ecosystem. Uh, so a lot changed for you, like it does for a lot of people, when you became a parent, didn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think the biggest reason for that for me, and I know other people share this, but I think one of the biggest challenges that any of us have, any individual has with dealing with climate change as a threat is that we know that psychologically, as a species, we haven't evolved to give long-term threats the same kind of urgency right. that we give immediate threats to our security. You know, for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, we lived a, a nomadic existence where the threat could be round the next corner. A threat could be from a pack of wolves or from a woolly mammoth or something. And we had to be alert. We had to be alert all the time. Now, the threat like climate change, we don't deal so well with a threat that is, you know, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 100 years down the road. Or simply an unknown length of time down the road. Yes. It could, it could be tomorrow, but we're not it really could. sure. And I think that certainly when we, we think that it's incremental, we know that the cliff is some way off. <laughs> but we what we can know for certain is the cliff, we, we can see that the cliff isn't right in front of us right now. <laughs> so we can put that decision off. Once you become a parent, suddenly you do begin to see the world in a slightly longer time frame. Huh. You, you look at your child as they're growing, and, you, and, and certainly for me as a parent, I started to think, what the hell is the world going to be like when she's an adult, when she wants to have children? You know, I can read these papers. I can look at the Paris report. I can look at all of the IPCC stuff and think, she's going to be 20 years old, 30 years old when these tipping points are reached. You know, I'm going to be at the end of my life. I will have lived a full life. I will not have to live during the reckoning yeah. of all this stuff coming home to roost. She's going to be in the prime of her life, yeah. possibly with children of her own. And that began that process of saying, hey, you in the armchair that's been asleep for the last 20 years, <laughs> get up. You know this is important. Be her advocate. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that sort of climate anxiety is yeah. pervasive now amongst the generation of folks who are in college that sure. I interact with at UofL. A lot of people questioning whether it makes sense to even think about having children. In, mm -hmm. in a world like this, yeah, where we've already baked in so much suffering. Yeah. And that's the problem with climate change, just as it is with COVID, right? The more we delay action, yes. the worse the suffering is going to be down the road. Yes. And so we're basically putting our future in debt. And the, the further we go down in time without changing rapidly business as usual, the more we're directly going to feel it, and certainly our children. Sure. We used to talk about intergenerational justice when I started learning about environmental issues in the 90s. Now it's within the generation yes. even. Yes. And, the, and there's been even greater awareness of the fact that it is going to be particularly more suffering for those who are already more marginalized in our society who can't yes. afford to adapt to climate sure. change, right? Sure. This is going to hit black and brown people worse. It's going to hit poor people worse. So there's this whole emergence of an environmental justice framework to think about these issues. Yeah. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts to share about how you think of it in terms of a justice issue, or does it really come down to just straight politics for you? I mean, so much of the 
so many of the environmental problems that we face in the world today, of which climate change is, is only the most urgent, but there are so many others. Yeah, 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 yeah. They do fundamentally come down to questions of justice. I mean, whether that justice is the fact that we know that even in a city like Louisville, that it is minority communities who live in the areas that are most affected by pollution, that are most affected, that are on the most marginal land, that are at most risk from flooding. White flight has taken the middle classes out to areas where the flooding isn't going to affect them when the Ohio bursts its bank. Yep, it's known um, as the Highlands. Yeah, uh, and beyond there into, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the East End, exactly. out to Oldham County and exactly. beyond. Uh, and that's true on a international scale as well, is that the developed world is much better placed to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And it is the developing world that will face the greatest challenges. They were the ones that will be hit by starvation. They'll be the ones that are hit by desertification. You know, one thinks of a country like Bangladesh. Oh my gosh, yeah. The hundreds of millions of people that will, that potentially will be displaced if sea rise is within the parameters that we're looking at, let alone anything worse than, than what we're already projecting. Vast parts of South Asia will be underwater. Yeah. Many megacities are on the coast. They That's will be right. inundated. Now, New York, Florida, they can potentially adapt. Even they're struggling, but potentially. <laughs> but places like Mumbai and places like Dhaka and, and other big cities in the developing world are, are going to be, just simply will not have the, the capacity and the resources, the, the finances. To, to deal with that challenge. And we will face that challenge because if you displace hundreds of millions of people, Where are they gonna they're go? going to go and look for security. Yeah. And they're going to be naturally drawn to the areas of the world that have the most resources. So cannot take your eye off the justice question when you're looking at the climate, whether it's locally in your own neighborhood, the fact that you, know, you look at an aerial map of the city, the West End <laughs> is not very green. No, <laughs> right? More trees. You have all these tree planting initiatives in the middle class white areas of Louisville <laughs> because the individuals can afford to make the donations and various other things. You don't see the same urgency to help the, the marginalized communities in your own neighborhood. And I think that that is just writ large when we look at some of these more existential questions and, and yeah. one of the challenges that we face on, on a global level. So, yes, justice is at the heart of all these environmental questions. And, and so is, you know, as I said before, the, 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 the values that are an integral and inherent part of what makes capitalism work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're talking at like 30,000 feet and, and these issues are important, but let's bring it down to ground level for you. Yeah. So you you got off the armchair and started taking action in yeah. your own life. Just share. I'm not saying I'm not trying to put you on a pedestal, but share with our listeners some of what you're fanatical about in terms of waste and recycling, for instance. What the do you what? Do? Oh. <laughs> One of the things that first struck me when I came to the States, came to live in the States, I've been here 10 years yeah, now. Yeah, yeah is that we've been recycling in, in Europe, been recycling in Britain, been required to recycle, <laughs> yeah, not just not recycling because we're committed, but because government has passed laws to reduce the amount of landfill waste. And that has had then knock-on effects down the supply chain. Yeah. And it has created a situation where, for example, my mother lives in a, in a what it's for the UK, for the United Kingdom, quite normal, but is a, a relatively densely concentrated uh, housing uh, that we call terraced houses, where you might get a, a row of 40, 50 houses. And, block, yeah. you know, these will have probably about 1,000, 1,500 square foot, usually on average. Uh -huh. But what you've got to imagine, every house now is required to have, it, it's at least three, it may even be four 
dustbins, right? Four garbage cans, one for paper, one for plastic, one for glass, one for anything that cannot be recycled. And just recently, in the last two or three years, they've also introduced small desktop composting because you're now required to also save your compostable materials to be collected. Now, of course, Brits like to do lots of grumbling (laughs) and whining. It's what we call, what the Australians call as whinging poms. But there hasn't been any noticeable backlash like the anti-maskers or the anti-vaxxers in the U.S. saying, how dare you tell me how to live my life? Yeah, it's un-American. I have the freedom not to compost. (laughs) There's not really been that. There's been a kind of grudging acceptance of it. And so it just became like a norm. And then I come over here. And I find uh, in in Louisville, when when I first arrived, I lived in a multi-family house. And the lady who owned the property, who is a good friend of mine now, at the time, she just had a regular orange recycling box. And she had a family of five. And I had a family of five. (laughs) And I'm like, we need something bigger than this box or even one box for me. We need something significant. We need one of those large orange cans. And so we got one. And my wife had never really thought about recycling when we met. And I looks like I have, <laughs> I've become the religious uh, sort of like the religious <laughs> fanatic in the family when it comes to recycling. I, you know, I'm like, I, I will stare at my like 12 year old holding something he's thrown in the regular trash <laughs> and say, what is this? And he'll say, oh, it's a, it's a soda can. And then is a soda can, where does the soda can belong? Oh, it's recycling. So why is it in the regular trash? And I put it that, and I have them do all that. And that's just to dump everything in one oh, unsortable man. mass. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 part of me rolls my eyes when I think, Americans have it lucky. It's easy yeah, to recycle. Yeah. Can you imagine every household in, in Louisville, let alone the United States, having to have one bin for plastic, yeah. one bin for paper, one bin for this, <laughs> and to compost? <laughs> I'm sure there would be anarchy in the streets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's just that's, that's, that's just great. my story. Yeah. That's great. And then what about your yard? You uh, have rebelled a little bit against the norms for, for maintaining a yard, right? You stopped treating it with chemicals, Yes, right? that's true. When I first arrived, I had a, a my backyard was a sort of classic American uh, <laughs> green desert, I like to call it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Where you have this immaculate lawn which has no life on it whatsoever. You hardly ever see any bees or butterflies. And to keep it in that mint condition, you are sold this chain of products. And I'll call it a chain. It's a chain of products and services that you get locked into. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. They will spray pesticide on it in the, in the, in the summer and then herbicide on it. And then they will come around and treat it again in the fall and then they'll have you sow new seed in the spring and and you get locked into this all perpetual series of treatments well i think well i i like my yard to have lots of flowers in it's a classic british yard is is a sort of has a manicured lawn but has an array of flower beds and bushes and ornamental shrubs and you know gardening has been part of the british psyche for a very long time yeah yeah so i came in and the first thing i did was i dug these in dug these huge flower beds up. So I tore up probably a good 40% of the lawn Fantastic. to make these flower beds. Yeah. Of course, I made some mistakes and planted things that I liked that weren't native. I know better now. But of course, what I noticed was I wasn't getting the wildlife. I wasn't getting the, the bees and the, oh, really? in, in the, and the butterflies in large quantities. And then I started, started doing some more research on it. And I found that most of the chemicals that are used by these companies that spray your lawns to make them perfectly green... <laughs> 
many of the chemicals are actually banned in other countries, particularly in the European Union. Many yeah. of these things are seen, particularly Roundup, for example. Yeah. There's a lot of research that shows that Roundup is very dangerous to human health, but it's particularly uh, uh, damaging uh, in uh, to, to the a broad spectrum of... Uh, of pollinators. And so I read, I learned more and more about this, and it's like, okay, well, I'm going to stop spraying. So I canceled my lawn treatment. Nice. And that led to an endless series of nuisance calls. I get endless <laughs> spam and nuisance calls from them saying, hey, this is X company, and oh, we, we had seen that you haven't sprayed this year. Yeah. Would you like us to come and spray with a discount? I'm like, no. No, go away. So, and then within, <laughs> within, um, within a, one year, the following spring and summer, I began to see the wildlife coming back. Cool. And so this year, I planted a. a I took one of the areas where I, I planted annuals, pretty little annuals, um, and I decided this year in the spring I sowed wildflower seed. Yeah. And in May, early June, I had this profusion of color, of so heights. Cool all natives and i have never had so many different sized bees and pollinators and black wasps and butterflies nice. and and it made me kind of look at it and think you know it's not that difficult yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nature a kind of has her own way of doing things yeah. and that's worked for millions of years until we came along and thought you know what let's screw with this system <laughs> <laughs> for our own aesthetic reasons yeah. you know yeah um so that's something that i've done yeah uh, in my own uh in my own household in my own yard well thanks for sharing those stories those are great you got to make it like concrete for people what can yeah, i possibly sure. do uh, my guest today here on Sustainability Now is Jason Abbott from the University of Louisville's Center for Asian Democracy, and he's a political science professor. We're talking about the roots of our own extinction rebellions and how we're incorporating into our lives. Well, meanwhile, here in America under Trump, you know, he's hell-bent on destroying what little progress we've made, and it kind of makes our personal steps feel kind of meaningless, right? Yes. So this gets towards feeding the climate anxiety. It makes it, it worse when it, when we feel like we don't have any power, right? It does, absolutely. And, and I think that also many, for want of a better term, allies of the environmental movement, uh, particularly of more radical elements of that movement, are at the moment, understandably, are now more concerned with the more immediate existential threat of the coronavirus yeah, yeah. And, the, and the economy and losing their job and, you know, uh, maybe being evicted. And that hasn't made the climate challenges go away. It's just we're now preoccupied with something that's much more, much more real, much more tangible, much more in, much more in our daily lives. And my fear is that, you know, my concern is that Trump's taking advantage of that to roll back these environmental regulations. And we know that there have been more environmental regulations, I think, have been rolled back in the last three and a half years than yeah. in the last decade yeah. or so. I mean, we've undone an enormous amount of, of steps that we that we struggled hard to make. And I think that, that you know people are so concerned with all these other things that they're either unaware or they simply just don't have the time and the mental energy to cope with all that is being thrown at us at the moment. Yeah. So that's my big concern with where we're at at this moment, at this juncture now. Yeah. And I think the only way sometimes that we can do is we, we have to sort of like try to zoom out from the timeliness of now uh, to like a 30,000 feet level and also a longer period and say, look, the coronavirus, terrible as it is, at some point in the next year to 18 months, we will have managed it to a point where we can resume, hopefully not business as usual, hopefully but not. we can return to a more, 
anxious free life right, in our daily existence. We can return to something closer to normality. But if we pull out and we accept that, we should then be able to see, but the climate crises are still there. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the kind of challenge that the coronavirus has posed will become more frequent because of climate change that we're going to see more evolution of viruses as we rid ourselves of more of, of the native forests and native ecosystems that remain. As we encroach more and more on them, the possibility for the transfer of viruses increases. Yeah. So that, it, it's a good point to kind of like zoom back out and say, hey, don't forget the environment. This kind of threat could become more real, more regular. But this should maybe be a, a kind of a wake-up call to say, Yes, we've got to deal with the coronavirus, but the coronavirus and all the ways that we respond to it, maybe they show us that we need to take this more seriously. Yeah. And we do have human agency because just as we can choose to wear a mask or not, we can choose whether to spray our lawns, we can choose whether or not to give up that second car, yeah. we can choose whether or not to live somewhere where we can use and utilise public transport. We can make choices that collectively will have an impact on our communities. And if it affects our communities, then it affects our states, it affects our countries, and then it can affect the globe. And hopefully the combination of making those changes in our lives, coupled with pressure from activists and direct action when necessary, can begin to affect the sort of changes that we need on a much more systemic level and on a value-based level. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier you were inspired by Greta Thunberg and her climate strikes, and then you participated in February 2019 in the yes. climate strike on UofL's campus, and you took your 10-year-old to his first ever <laughs> protest I in did. Lexington. That was fun. That was, uh, although <laughs> I had to drive there, so it kind of <laughs> I felt a little bit like I was cheating because I went to Lexington <laughs> because there wasn't one in Louisville on that Friday. But this um, is where you got connected with Alice from Extinction Rebellion. I did. Kentucky. That's where I met Alice for the first time. And we developed a social media friendship, really, because we, we, we chat on there and we, yeah. we, we discuss things. But yeah, I met her for the first time at that event in Lexington. And I didn't even know at that point that we had an Extinction Rebellion in Kentucky. You know, I, And so it was worth it just for making that connection. You know, I was aware of the, of the movement in London. I know a few people who were in the movement in the UK. And so to find someone local was was a, was a great bonus. Yeah. And to be inspired by the young yes, people who are, who are striking for climate makes us very hopeful. And then, of course, as a professor, you're interacting with young people, too. Tell us about this politics, philosophy, and economics course that you co-taught oh, with yeah. Avery Cole. <laughs> so, in a way, this is kind of like wonderful return to the origin point, in a way, uh -huh, of, uh -huh. of the story that I've told you today and I've told your listeners. So, a, a colleague of mine, Professor Avery Collins, who I think has been on the show. He was a past. host of Ethics Forward okay, here on go. the station, yes. And he, a few years ago, with a colleague in economics and a colleague in politics, set up a course called PPE. It's quite common in colleges in Britain that these three are combined into a single course, at least uh, at some point in an undergraduate's political science program. And so what Avery decided to do, what Professor Cole decided to do, was uh, have the political science, the economics, and the philosophy professors engage their students in the intersections of all of these arguments and the intersection of, of the disciplines, the academic study, yeah. so that, you know, when you talk about markets, you don't normally talk about values. Right, right. So you start to think about economics differently and how economics professors deal with those value questions, which they do. It's just... For the most part, they're not at the, the forefront of the pedagogy, of the study of it and the, the teaching. And so it had been taught by a colleague of mine, and he had, for various reasons, had moved off the program. And, and uh, Avery approached me and asked me if I would do it. 
And we just we sat down and we discussed, well, you know, politics, philosophy, economics, where do you begin? Yeah. <laughs> so he talked to me about the various things that he discussed. And I said, well, what I'd like to do then is I would like to make my section about the politics of the environmental movement uh-huh. and the understanding of that and the background of that. And so what I did was in my third of the course, I took students through a number of steps in the I told the story of the development of the American environmental movement and the global movement, but I also did it through the significance of certain key texts and key thinkers, yeah. uh, landmarks of the development of the American environmental movement. And so we looked at uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring right. and how Silent Spring, within a generation, had inspired uh, countercultural protest movements that would eventually become the green movement that we know today. Absolutely. That it results in the creation of the EPA and the regulations on herbicides and pesticides. So how one person challenging the fundamental principles and ideas at the heart of our agriculture and economic system then could have a disproportionate effect on activism and and then on legislation. And then we move forward to look at, I looked at the birth and origin of the Greenpeace movement, which is born out of the anti-nuclear movement. Yeah. And it started as an attempt to stop the United States from carrying out surface nuclear missile tests in the late 60s. And they went and parked themselves basically in the, in the zone, got lots of media attention, and eventually... The U.S. did ban surface nuclear testing, but it then morphed into anti-whaling and all of the other things that Greenpeace would become. But it basically began as a group of journalists, a Quaker, a veteran returning from Vietnam, scientists all coming together and, and, and showing that activism can work but also manipulating the media, which is what Greenpeace became (laughs) very uh, famous for. And so I took them through all of this and engaged with some of the value questions they'd already dealt with. So we looked at, you know, is this at a deeper level about the values that are at the heart of the society, about how we know things? What is our role in the broader ecological system? What do we mean by anthropocentric? And how does that affect every aspect of the way we look at the world? And the students loved it. It was a small group unfortunately coronavirus intervened so we had to change the methods (laughs) we had to go on to a sort of hybrid model yeah but the feedback was very positive oh excellent and and it kind of did it kind of completed the loop i began thinking about studying environmentalism for my graduate studies and then uh, and then this year i returned to teaching environmentalism in my political science so it was a a nice personal journey for me to get to that point to go get off the armchair (laughs) bring it back into what i do for a living which is a professor of political science so we got to wrap up here, but sure. I want to I want to get quickly like what's going on with you now and what's next for you right now. You're trying to stop the destruction of seventy five hundred year old trees on Newburgh Avenue. <laughs> what kind of response have you gotten? Oh uh, well, sadly, you know I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the story I tell about that was this lovely little wooded glen that was on Newburgh. Um, it's part of a larger sort of plantation estate that originally, I believe. Yeah. And uh, I used to love driving past it. It was a lovely little green area that I would pass through. And I, whenever I have to go anywhere on the highway, that's my route to the highway. Whenever I go a long journey. And I would drive past it and I'd, I'd be grateful for it. And then one day I drove past and it wasn't there. Oh, my gosh. It simply was gone. It had been destroyed. You drive past that area now, you'll see what looks like a scene out of the Amazon rainforest where you <laughs> oh. had all the trees cut down. 
the earth has been disturbed so you've got that orange look that you get when you've just got you know land that's been ripped up and they're going to build 16 McMansion houses on the property oh. and they're going to sell for between $600,000 to a million dollars so they're, they're not dressing the, the lack of affordable housing no, in Louisville, no, no, which no, if no. they were, would make it a little bit more easy to swallow. <laughs> but no, they're, they're, they're trying to sell big houses to rich people. Yep. And my daughter, when she's six years old, she saw it. She said to me, Daddy, don't they know that we need trees to breathe? And I said, I don't know, sweetie. I really don't know. And then she said, and where will all the squirrels and where will all the birds live? And, you know, how do you answer a six-year-old's innocent question like that? Yeah. You know? That you just can't begin to yeah. and I, sadly I wasn't you know I, I did a lot of inquiry and it, obviously it was too late to stop that development and one of the problems is that it was a single residential plot zoned and, uh, yeah. so under mm. the zoning laws they could subdivide it it's all legal and up until I believe that they changed the rules a little bit in April made it a little bit tougher but this was passed in January Wow. And there was a lot of local opposition, but there was nothing under the legal framework that we had that could prevent this. And so it's gone. And there are other plans across the city for this kind of oh, development. Yeah. I had one councillor say to me, well, at least it's infill rather than suburban sprawl. Really? And I was like, really? <laughs> You're telling me that you would, you know, <laughs> destroying this, this area is For better than spreading right. suburbia? You know, neither is acceptable. No, it's right, not, right. We sh it shouldn't be a choice between either of those options. Especially as we sit here on Broadway no. and we look out over seas of vacant and unbuilt land. Sure. So I think what we yeah. need to do on a local level then is there's so much we can do to make our planning regime. Yeah save our, you know, it's, on the one hand, the city's trying to get us to build our uh, urban canopy back up. We have lofty plans to create this new urban canopy. Well, you can't do that and then at the other hand, pull down 75 old mature trees. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a disconnect. Yep. So you have to make your planning fit the aspirations you have, otherwise the aspirations are meaningless. And so we can do stuff at a local level. And I think that that's where people see the most immediate impacts and changes. So I do strongly encourage people, you know, to be aware of what's happening in their community, what, what developmental projects there are, and get involved in those processes because they frequently are required to have consultative processes and go to them, turn out, be there, and be the voice that uh, your environment needs locally and, and your community needs locally. Fantastic note to end on. Thank okay. you, Jason Abbott, so much for joining us today. Hope to get you back up in here sometime. We can talk about deep adaptation. <laughs> all right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a minute here, it's your community action calendar with all kinds of ways to make sustainability a reality now in Louisville this week. So stay tuned. We need to wake up. We need to wise up. We need to open our eyes and do it now, now, now. We need to build a better future. And we need to start right now. We're on a planet that has a problem. We've got to solve it, get involved and do it now, now, now. We need to build a better future. And we need to start right now. So make it greener, so make it cleaner, so make it last, mend it fast and do it now, now, now. We need to build a better future and we need to start right now. No point in waiting, 
or hesitating. We must get wise, take no more lies and do it now, now, now. We need to build a better future and we need to start right now. friends time to get your pencils out and get your calendars ready for action for sustainability this week here on forward radio with me justin mogg you're listening to 106.5 fm and forwardradio.org we are your community radio station of by and for the people and am deeply embedded in our community and that is why this community action calendar is such an important part of the show to make louisville more sustainable it's going to take all of us digging in and get involved so let's do it this week there is so 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 much going on. No need to sit on your hands this week. One exciting bit of news is that free trees are available to all Louisville residents. Trees Louisville's partnering with the Arbor Day Foundation to give away 700 free trees this fall to Louisville residents. The species available include awesome oh, great shade trees, tulip poplar, sycamore, American beech, willow oak, redbud, sugar maple, and black gum. Order yours today at www arborday.org slash trees louisville and that's uh 700 free trees given out to louisville residents this fall uh it's the fourth round of the partnership that has delivered nearly 3,000 trees in the past year at no cost to residents these trees will have a significant impact on energy savings in your home or business carbon sequestration and improved water quality for decades to come and it, eliminate, it estimates where a tree planted on your property will provide maximum benefits. Trees should arrive in late October or early November, just in time for the fall tree planting season. One free tree per resident, and the trees are one to three feet tall in one-gallon pots. So get it now. Reserve yours today at arborday.org slash trees Louisville. Also want to let you know about some events this week on Wednesday, September 23rd at 2.30 p.m. Developing new Amtrak corridors, expanding the U.S. passenger market. Are you frustrated about living in the second largest U.S. city with no passenger rail service? Well, join the Rail Passengers Association on Wednesday at 2.30 as we hear from Ray Lang, Amtrak's Senior Director for National State Relations on programs being developed by Congress, states, and the railroad to build out the national network into understanding served markets like Louisville and Columbus, Ohio. Lang will also give an inside look at the conversations Amtrak is having with individual states looking to bring passenger rail service to their region. You'll also hear from the association's Sean Jills Jeans Gale about the work done by the states and the Federal Railroad Administration to map out network expansions in the Southwest, the Southeast, and the Midwest. Get registered at railpassengers.org under Happening Now and webinars. It's coming up this Wednesday, the 23rd at 2.30 p.m. It's free for everybody. Yeah, now's the time to get engaged in uh, making rail a reality, uh, passenger rail a reality here in Louisville again. 
There's an extended deadline to register that's also Wednesday the 23rd for the Ohio River Basin 2020 Summit. It's Wednesday, September 30th through Friday the 2nd of October, mostly online and hosted by the University of Louisville, the Ohio River Basin Consortium for Research and Education, and the Ohio River Basin Alliance present this multi-day virtual conference on bridging visions to protect our health economy and environment in the Ohio River Basin. The summit kicks off on Wednesday the 30th, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. with a series of six implementation workshops for the Ohio River Strategic Plan. On Wednesday evening from 5 to 8, there will be a free Ohio River celebration at the Waterfront Botanical Gardens on Frankfurt Avenue at River Road. And join us to learn how researchers, conservation groups, and recreation enthusiasts collaborate to restore and protect the Ohio River and its tributaries. Inspirational exhibits will be arranged across the gardens with music featuring local artists at 6 p.m. on the, on the 30th, uh, we will pause in our explorations to hear about uh, short presentations from representatives of the City of Louisville, Ohio River Basin Alliance, and Ohio River Consortium for Research and Education, and a presentation of the 2020 Riverkeeper Award to Dr. Michael Miller, Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Cincinnati. And on continues on Thursday, October 1st from 9 to 10 a.m. The keynote speaker will be Katrina Korfmacher, Professor of Environmental Medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center, speaking about bridging the silos of environmental and health local collaborations to improve North America's uh, to improve environmental justice. At 10 a.m., Brad Colet, professor of plant sciences at the University of Tennessee, will speak on the Tennessee River Line, a vision for North America's next great regional trail system. And then at 11 a.m., a panel on bridges toward healing troubled water strategies for collaboration. And then there's a lunch break. And at 1 p.m. on the 1st, you can get a panel on COVID-19 risks to the aquatic environment. And then from 2 to 6.40 p.m. on the 1st, concurrent research presentations on the social ecological systems and on water quality of the Ohio River Basin. And it concludes on Friday, October 2nd with a 9 a.m. keynote from John Austin, director of the Michigan Economic Center on Reclaiming the Waters of the Ohio, How Restoring the Ohio River Watershed Can Build a Thriving Blue Economy. And it wraps up 10 a.m. to noon with Seizing the Day for Ohio River Restoration, a vision for science-based ecosystem restoration integrated with equity and justice. This will be a free public interactive discussion with staff from the National Wildlife Federation about a proposed science-based framework for ecosystem restoration that considers threats including habitat loss, climate change, and others to the Ohio River and its tributaries, impacts from those threats, and potential approaches to restoring the aquatic environment in the basin. So you can get more information and the link to register for all of it, both the paid portion and the two free public events, which again are an Ohio River celebration. This come uh, on Wednesday, September 30th from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Waterfront Botanical Gardens, and then the October 2nd, 10 a.m. to noon, uh, concluding seizing the day for Ohio River restoration uh, discussion with the National Wildlife Federation. You can register for all of it at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And again, the deadline to do so is Wednesday, September 23rd. Now, Thursday, there is a bunch of stuff happening on the 24th. The Post Landfill Action Network is doing a monthly movement movie night. This fall, Plan is hosting free monthly movie nights. Uh, each month, they will live stream for you a different documentary highlighting certain areas of environment and social injustice. Afterwards, there'll be a 
discussion led by a planned staff member and all of you. The schedule is starts in, starting this Thursday, September 24th at 6 p.m. The film is called COVID's Hidden Toll, a film that highlights the injustices and hardships that essential workers face in a time of COVID and what they're going through. What does it mean to be essential during a global pandemic and at what cost does that come? So that's 6 p.m. on Thursday and it will continue on October 28th on, uh, with a film called Plastic Wars. November 17th it'll be about Flint's Deadly Water and it concludes on December 7th with Merchants of Cool. You can find the links to register for each movie at facebook.com slash postlandfill and you can also follow at postlandfill on Instagram for more information. Also on Thursday at 6 p.m., maintaining your mental health while fighting for social justice. Whether through frontline protests, social media, education, or the workplace, the current fight for social justice is powerful and never-ending. It can also be draining, exhausting, and uncertain. Regardless of your role in the fight, it is important to maintain your mental health and continue the fight. So join us to hear from a stellar panel of Black Uville alumni, mental health practitioners, sharing their insights and tips for maintaining your mental health while fighting for social justice. We're excited to welcome as our panelists uh, Derika Canada Cunningham, PhD, Deshara Daub, and uh, Masters of Social Work, a Marriage and Family Therapy Associate, Stephen Kniffley, Jr., um, and uh, Ashley Hazley, who has a Masters of Education, will be serving as the moderator. There will also be a Q&A discussion, so submit your questions through the registration form or bring them to the event. You can find the link to register for this free event, which is Thursday at 6 p.m. at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Also, just after that, Thursday at 7 p.m., it's another online event, L Surge, Louisville showing up for racial justice, emerging conversations, community safety for all. Some of us are new to the conversation about over-policing, while others have been thinking about it for a long time. Some feel safe most of the time, others feel unsafe on a regular basis. This is one of three events planned to help lean into these conversations, particularly as it relates to our faith communities. Each gathering will be framed with prayer, reflection, and meditation. We will summarize the focus for the evening, which will include the history of policing, the current issues with increasingly militarized policing, and the current realities where many communities don't feel safe and secure and do not trust many of the public institutions to help. These events will be spaces for dreaming about what a safe community means for everyone and looking to emerging models of how we can make those communities a reality. And uh, there'll be lots of great folks involved in this conversation. To learn more and join the virtual event, go to facebook.com slash Surge Louisville. That's S-U-R-J Louisville. And again, that's this Thursday, the 24th at 7 p.m. Hey, same time, different thing. Wild and Scenic Film Festival will be taking place this Thursday, the 24th at 7 p.m. It's also virtual. It's a live virtual event to support the Kentucky Conservation Committee. Streaming at your convenience for additional days after the event through September 29th, the Kentucky Conservation Committee's excited to be bringing their sixth annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival to you virtually this year. Would have loved to see you in person, but we have realized that we cannot do it safely and we do not want to miss out. 
out on these great films, this great selection of award-winning films from the nation's largest environmental film festival. These engaging films inspire activism and transport audiences to the farthest reaches of the globe. Enjoy fabulous filmmaking, gorgeous cinematography, and wonderful storytelling during an evening that offers films about nature, hiking, kayaking, cycling, wildlife, and environmental justice. So join us on Thursday the 24th for an evening of adventure and inspiration from the comfort and safety of your home. More information about all the films, raffle prizes, and how to get your tickets, which are all a benefit for the Kentucky Conservation Committee, you can go to kyconservation.org slash wildscenic2020. kyconservation.org for the Wild and Scenic Film Festival this Thursday at 7 p.m. Now, Friday the 25th at 11 a.m., also virtually, UofL's Sustainability Roundtable continues with uh, Brent Fryer this week. Uh, he's the director of the Partnership for a Green City, and it's a unique partnership between Louisville Metro Government, uh, UofL, Jefferson County Public Schools, and JCTC, all striving to improve the environment and overall quality of life in the community. Uh, and you can learn more about it uh, at the Sustainability Roundtable this Friday the 25th at 11 a.m. You can find the link to participate free at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Also at UofL this weekend, if you want to get involved in helping us out with the Pollinator Garden work days, they're uh, taking place Saturdays, September 26th and October 10th, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. And this is at the Corfidge Native Plant Garden, which is just west of Life Sciences and across the walkway from the new Garden Commons location. The UofL Botanical Society invites you to join us for a work day at the Pollinator Garden next to Life Sciences. It is in need of some love and we'll be following all pandemic guidelines to stay safe. A mask will be required. If you don't have one, one will be provided. Physical distancing also required. Please bring plenty of water and gardening gloves, and they recommend a hat, light snack, long pants, and sunscreen. And if the weather is terrible, if it's raining, if it's really hot above 90 degrees or less than 40, they will not be doing the workday. But otherwise, plan to join this Saturday, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., and you can find more information at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Also on Saturday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's a pop-up drop-off at Sun Valley Park, 10401 Lower River Road. Pop-up drop-offs are free recycling and large item disposal events for residents of Jefferson County. These events will pop up around the county once per month from March through November. Starting uh, September 26th, you can use the Recycle Coach app to receive notifications about future events or view them on the app calendar. You can also check the pop-up drop-off website Uh, For updates, you can find it at louisvilleky.gov. What will they be accepting for recycling on Saturday in Sun Valley Park, 10 a.m. to 2? Well, electronics, up to three items per household for recycling. Metal and appliances, uh, no refrigerators or any items containing coolant, but otherwise, metal and appliances will be accepted for recycling. Up to four passenger tires, household recyclables, uh, following basic curbside guidelines, yard waste for composting, Large household items uh, uh, will be accepted for landfilling. Paper shredding uh, for recycling and prescription medications can be disposed of properly. Again, it's all happening this Saturday, the 26th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Sun Valley Park on Lower River Road. And lastly, this Saturday, it's the next in the Progressive Women of Old Louisville walking tour. The Women of Old Louisville helped transform the city during the rise of the suffrage movement. You can learn about their philanthropic history and contributions they left behind 
mind on this guided walking tour through historic old Louisville. It's every Saturday at 10 a.m. and it leaves from the Conrad Coldwell House Museum and it's sponsored by the Filson Historical Society. Tickets are $25 for adults, $15 for students. You can purchase tickets at conradcaldwell.org. And that's all we have time for today here on Sustainability Now. Stay tuned. Lots of great stuff coming up. And I'll be back again in your ears in one week's time, my friends. Be well, stay safe, stay six feet apart, and masked up, my friends. Thank you.